Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today because one of the singular artists of our time has left us. Prince Rogers Nelson, better known to everyone simply as Prince, has died at 57 at his home outside Minneapolis. I'm Alex Papadimus, executive editor of MTV News. We're music journalists in a moment like this, but we're also fans, and we've spent today doing the same thing you're probably all doing. We're sitting around talking about why we love Prince and what he meant to us, how he reshaped and derailed our lives for the better, and about everything we owe him. You're about to hear from MTV's Doreen St. Felix and Jamil Smith. We've got a remembrance from Jane Coaston, also of MTV, and I called up my old podcast partner, Wesley Morris, at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us. Here's Jamil and Doreen. So the AP just confirmed about five minutes ago that Prince has died um, in his Minneapolis estate this morning. Today is April 21st, um, and it snowed in April today. Indeed. Um, the thing I thought about immediately once I heard the news was uh, the same thing I thought when uh, I saw that David Bowie had died. And it was just, you know, very early morning hours of that day a couple months ago. And it's that uh, it's it's the people who give you the permission to be weird who you tend to miss the most. It's just it's it's heartbreaking. Yes, it is. Um, because Jamil and I are from different generations, but we've both been so affected by this artist who especially thinking about the connection between blackness and weirdness, how often that's policed, how often that's patrolled. Mm -hmm. Somebody like Prince, who could not give less of a fuck what people thought. At the 2015 Grammys, Prince comes on with this just, this incredible smirk on his face. (laughs) He's not for this show. He's not for the pageantry of it. He has come to make this statement, and the statement that he makes verbatim is albums. Remember those? Albums still matter. Albums like books and black lives still matter. And this is, I mean, for all its, you know, his hint of snobbery, which I love so much about him, (laughs) the statement was actually a little bit, uh, he... He made the statement before a lot of black artists that we're talking about right now in 2016. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter still, of course, is, um, you know, it has not been universally embraced in this country, especially when it comes to pop stars. And often you see fans just wishing that somebody will make a statement about their predicament. Mm -hmm. And Prince has been making statements all along. And the fact that he could just saunter in to this extremely agnostic, apolitical space and just turn the tide completely to, you know, the real fact of the matter, the fact that Black Lives Matter extends into music and that, yes, we just, we've been recently using this slogan, but it has been permeating his work since the beginning. Right. And the statement about albums I thought was particularly uh, poignant because, you know, albums, you know, should be, like, you know, a lot for a lot of people, at least old school folks like me, viewed as, you know, comprehensive statements that are made up of pieces, you know, that when listened to as a whole, convey a number of messages or even one certain message. And I think with every single album Prince did, you, you know, if he's trying something different musically or if he's trying uh, to convey, you know, an, you know, a message that 
isn't particularly, um, you know, uh, maybe socially relevant, even if it's just about, you know, hot thing. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's just it's it's about humanity. And I think Prince is, you know, a rare gift to us. And I think um, at least I hope we treated him well while he was here. I hope we did. And I'm not sure if we whenever someone of this magnitude passes, I just feel racked with guilt as a fan. I I feel like there's lead in my chest right now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny. I was watching this conversation go down on Twitter last week um, and someone just, you know, was talking about Prince being on this really plain tour that he's on right now. It's just about him and his piano and his voice. Um, And they said, you know, Prince will release one of the best albums of the year in 2050. That man will never die. It may still happen. You know, right? Maybe he has a vault. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe there's like 30 extra albums at Paisley Park that we just never heard of all this stuff that he used as ex- experimental inspiration. Um, I think that I just would love to just understand him better as an artist. Um, but, uh, you know, I wish he was here to tell the story. It's been, what, 15 minutes at this point? Mm, yeah. Um, since we found out the news, but I just can't. I see him everywhere. I think about Lemonade on Saturday. That, you know, this special that Beyonce's doing on HBO, that is a direct uh, descendant of the way Prince was as a pop star. Prince did not only make music, he made movies. The movies were kind of, you know, they were interesting. (laughs) (laughs) The Purple Rain trilogy is quite the conceptual project. Under the Cherry Moon is an (laughs) underappreciated classic, I guess. I Uh, agree. (laughs) But that is to say, he was an artist to his very bones. He was so conceptual that sometimes things went over our heads. Um, The infamous, you know, moment in the 90s when (laughs) Prince just decides to not have a name anymore. He decides to become a symbol. It was hokey in some ways, but also his just deep, deep commitment Mm -hmm. to concept and aesthetics and to queerness and all forms. Right. Um, You know, it, it changed the face of black music as we know it today. I think that's a really important note that you just made with regards to queerness. Um, I think Prince, for a lot of us, wasn't just about reforming ideas of what blackness should be or is, but it's also about what being a man should be or is. I mean, think about Prince with, you know, his, his straightened hair and his high notes and his and muses, his, his dress, his the music, the ambiguous <laughs> vibes within. You know, if I was your girlfriend, I mean, there's all these different things that are just pervade his art that are about questioning traditional ideas of masculinity. That I think we're going to need some artists today to pick up that ball. Absolutely, and there's something I think extremely symbolic that you know Prince repped the Midwest till the end. Amen. You could not tell that man that the waters <laughs> of Lake Minnetonka were not purifying, okay? Um, and that meant something to an Ohio boy, let me tell of you. Of course, it must have. There's yeah. just, he was an American heartland artist. I think that black 
eccentric R&B rock artists don't usually get ascribed with that label. That might be something that we think of more when we talk about like white country artists. But he was from where he was from. He died where he was from. Um, and it's just something that I hope doesn't get lost in regionalism is something that was so incredibly important to him and something that erupted to the end. And, you know, there are assumptions about conservatism in regions like that in the country. And he undid a lot of them. Yes, he Because did. he was who he was while being from this place that we don't, you know, usually... We don't usually think of it as like cosmopolitan or like sexy and weird like L.A. or New York. Right. No, it doesn't matter. Um, and that's something that I he helped me learn more about America. Honestly, mm. my parents are actually West Indian. They're not American. And so my entryway to a lot of American music was through your standard light FM radio station. Um, and I remember hearing uh, I think a good example of this would be When Doves Cry, because that's the one. You know, if there is an ultimate Prince single, it is that song. And I remember feeling so captivated and enchanted by the weirdness of the message, its ambiguity. And I started to look up this guy. And then I find out, oh, he's like, this song came out 20 years ago. <laughs> First of all, I might have been around nine or 10 at that point. And then learning about his biography and how important family and and how important um, his family's space was to him, it helped me to understand how black American people might live in a way that I didn't right. living in, you know, in an extremely, I lived, I grew up in Brooklyn. I didn't have like, I wasn't around nature. I wasn't around water, none of those things. Mm -hmm. And I, it, he created like a fantasy world for me. Prince was a planet and on these planets, you know, we would have like incredible waters like Lake Minnetonka. And um, I actually have never been able to go to the Midwest, but I felt through him I was able to understand a bit of America, a story about America that doesn't usually get told via music. Yeah. He made the Midwest uh, for us living there and growing up there uh, look like the hottest place on earth, <laughs> not just in terms of the weather. Because you never saw Prince walking around in a winter coat in back home in Minnesota. Oh, good point. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's it, it just the hottest place on earth. You felt like, the, you know, like Minneapolis could be a home for cool people. So could Cleveland. So could Chicago. So could St. Louis. His presence there helped bring us back to a point where, you know, we understand that genius can come from anywhere. It can come from a relatively short, light-skinned dude from Minnesota who picks up a guitar and plays it better than anybody else. You know, the New York Times obituary that just came out uh, for Prince uh, called him singular. And I think that that is uh, an apt word. There literally will never be another like him. That was Jamil Smith and Doreen St. Felix from our studio in New York. Next up, calling in from Washington, D.C., here's politics correspondent Jane Koston. He made it okay to be difficult and excessive and to be who you were. He opened for the Rolling Stones in 1981 and showed up in a bikini brief and got, like, booed off stage. And it was like, eh, okay. And that's kind of amazing, you know? Like, kind of amazing that someone could just be so themselves while being this black musician who could play like Hendrix but could also do hip-hop and pop and some very religious 
who was just so many things all at once and kind of showed me and it showed a lot of people that they could be too. You know, I came up around the time that he was battling with Warner about his use of his name and the idea of someone just being like, no, you can't have my name and I'm going to change my name to a symbol you can't pronounce. Like, there was really something to that of something about like, yes, I am going to be difficult right now. I'm not going to be accommodating. That was, you know, as someone who's, you know, gay and non-white, like, I remember thinking to myself in a weird way, I was like, oh, that person seems like me. And, like, you know, obviously he was, like, this shirtless man in tight leather pants who was, like, very small and had a very, like, produced mustache. And yet I was like, yeah, that feels a lot like me. I know that he was heterosexual and religious, but I think that my perceptions of him as being kind of genderqueer was something that I really appreciate. And I don't want to put this on my guest. He was like, a gay icon or something like that, but I want to say that for a lot of queer people, he gave a lot, especially black queer people, he gave us permission to be like fancy and shady and saucy and pretty in a way that like we had never really seen reflected. You know, he wore stilettos and he was four, five foot four and he just did not care what you thought about any of it. I have a pompadour in some ways because I saw Prince, you know, I remember seeing the album cover for Purple Rain, and he's sitting on that motorcycle just looking at you, and I'm like, yeah, I want that. That was Jane Coaston. Between 2013 and 2015, Wesley Morris and I did a film podcast together called Do You Like Prince Movies? We never actually answered the question posed by the title, partly because it's obvious, don't trust anybody who doesn't love Purple Rain. Anyway, when I found out Prince was dead, he's the first person I wanted to talk to, so I called him up. What's up, man? I'm sorry that uh, we're reuniting under these circumstances, but hello. Well, it's nice to hear your voice. It's nice to hear yours. At the very least. I thought, listen, I, I, I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot about Prince's passing, about his death, but I, I want to talk about his life. I want to talk about and, and his uh, impact on our lives. I feel like we, we did a podcast that was about him all the time, even when it was not about him at all. Uh, do you have a memory? Do you have something that you want to go back to? Is there something that you're pulling out? And I say that because I know what mine is. First of all, can I just interrupt this thought for a second to just say hi and how nice it is to talk to you and how when you texted me last week about this very thing possibly happening today, I was like, oh, that would suck, but you were pretty much the only person alive that I want to talk to you about this in a moment like that so hello hello i feel the same way it's a it's a it's a bittersweet moment it's interesting it's but you know at the same time it's it's weird to feel this way but it's like all this all this prints on the timeline and all of these people sort of coming out and kind of celebrating his his legacy and celebrating him as something is you know something more than you know uh, everybody's favorite dave Chappelle character or something like that. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. And it's, it, you know, it's, and it's interesting because there's not, a, you know, it, you, I, I feel, I felt the same way about Bowie that there's just that everything, you know, everything about his life somehow sort of pointed toward this moment. It's about him, you know, his, it's, he was preparing us for this in, in some way. I feel like, I don't know, I don't know why, but I was just reading, you know, I was just reading all this or like this, you know, all the different song lyrics, sort of all of his thoughts about the afterlife and all, you know, every, the, he, you know, he was obsessed with this. Like, you know, he, you know, he, he lived for this moment. 
But I don't know. The thing that I came to, the thing that I pulled out, honestly, the last Prince song I just listened to. I mean, look, the first Prince song I listened to while I was driving to work, I was leaving the doctor's office and driving to work. I listened to on Tidal because this is also how Tidal gets us. This is the biggest moment in the history of Tidal. Uh, I listened to Sometimes It Snows in April from the from Parade, mm. from the soundtrack of Under the Cherry Moon, a Prince movie that I think we both liked. It's the last song. Yeah. That is the most, it's, it, it's, it's the most him forecasting his own death in the eeriest way now. It's just, it's a, such a strange, so I, I was just, I, I wanted to steer into the skid, right? I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to put on Let's Go Crazy and think about, you know, celebrating his life or whatever. I want to feel sad in this moment. I want to tap into my sadness and steer directly into that. Uh, that did it just fine. And I yeah. had to, you know, I I'd, uh, made it to work without pulling over. But the last Prince song that I listened to. Uh, the one that I put on, you have to go to Vimeo for it. It's not anywhere else. I listen to Bat Dance. I know that's weird, but Bat Dance is really where it all begins for me. I know there's so much before that too. You know, there's it, 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 that it, and you know many people like you know it, like Purple Rain was years earlier and everything. For some reason, I think my household was similar. Like we didn't listen to Prince. It was not a Prince household. We were not Prince fans. Um, but Bat Dance, like, because I was a comic book nerd, that sort of really penetrated immediately because it was one of those things that made people very concerned about the Tim Burton Batman movie. And you had to have an opinion about Bat Dance. Me at 12 had to really get in there. Bat Dance is incredible. You listen to Bat Dance? Yeah. Recently? It's not recently uh, enough. I listen, I listen to the Batman soundtrack at least once a year or twice a year. And I listen to Electric Chairs in one of the mixes I have when I run. Like Vicky Waiting and Electric Chair are two songs I hear all the time because they're just, they're in various playlists I have. Um, that album is really good. Trust is really good. Lemon Crush is really good. But then it ends with Bat Dance. And there's so much happening in that song. And I remember how panned that, that record was. Just the song. I mean, the album didn't get very good reviews either. But that song was kind of laughed at. It hit number one. It was popular and everything. The video was on all the time. But it seemed somehow sellouty or not princely. But it really, if, if you're going to do a movie soundtrack song with a character that you as Prince don't really, really probably care that much about, you're probably going to do something like Bat Dance, which is kind of foul and into the the legend and lore of the, of, of this particular Batman. Um, I don't know. I'm with you. I, it's kind of a, I mean, underrated, whatever, like we could talk about what's underrated about Prince forever, but I feel like bat, bat dance might be, (laughs) first of all, it's called bat dance. It's so ridiculous. It's so absurd. And I, I, but you know, I, I was listening to it. I was like, people who really wanted a serious Batman movie, it made them very nervous about what that was going to be because they're like, oh, listen to this garbage. But like listening back to it, watching that video today and sort of, and thinking about it, even in this, everything that you need to, that it was important about Prince is somehow contained in Batdance, right? That he's, there's all of the borders, all of the sort of the hard lines that we had understood between rock and funk and soul and jazz and all that and, you know, uh, sexuality and spirituality and all those things. And between Batman and the Joker, there's no distinctions that he, there was, he never met a distinction that he didn't refuse to acknowledge. And I think that's incredible. And I, I feel like that's, I don't know. I was, uh, I was weirdly moved by Bat Dance today and I'm sure that's contextual 
in a lot of ways, but I also think it's one of those things where the entire the entire DNA of Prince is in every cell. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's all there all the time. But Bad Dance, that's a. I mean, it's funny that you that you seized on that. Like, I don't even know where I where I would have started, because um, I just on the way into work today, because uh, I was home when it happened. Uh, I put on Dirty Mind. I don't know why. I just felt like I was going to go in some kind of chronology, but I skipped. Yeah, I started with Dirty Mind instead of, you know, For You or Controversy. Um, and I don't know. The, the evolution as a, as, a, as, a, as a mercurial person is sort of also, that also culminates in that Batman soundtrack too. Um, I would throw the Batman soundtrack in with that with that really good run that would include Sign of the Times and Absolutely Parade and um I think Love Sexy's a great album. I mean all of that stuff from the eighties I think is really just fan expletive tastic. Like I think the reason that he means so much to me is that and I know this is I hadn't I mean, this is an unprocessed thought, so just work with me. Um but I remember feeling like as a as a young black kid in like the 1980s who didn't quite get hip hop in the way that I think I was supposed to. I really think I was too young for it in a lot of ways. And I also think it was music that like as a person who understood he was gay just didn't quite connect to. And it wasn't until someone like De La, like a, like a group like De La Soul or Tribe Called Quest comes around that I felt connected, that I felt like I could connect to it. And even though it was a part of my life, I didn't feel the kind of visceral connection that other people around me did. But Prince, I really got. Once I figured it out and once he became, once I figured out that he was for me, he was really for me. And he was for me because he he did have this sort of wide-ranging sensibility. He did like rock and funk and jazz. And he made all these connections that for music that I had never previously, that I wasn't aware he was making. Like the Parliament stuff, for instance. Like I didn't, I wouldn't have necessarily gotten that or the Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff. Um, that stuff, it all sounded new to me. And I was just like, yeah, this is another way to do this. This is another way to be a black artist while not forsaking your blackness, but expanding what, what it means, what the sort of limited understanding of the way blackness works. I mean, he was obviously Jimi Hendrix. He was also George Clinton. He was also, you know, to some extent, Bill Withers. There was a lot of, you know, Betty Davis. All those things are in the music, but he's, they're all synthesized through him. And I don't know. I wasn't lost as a kid in any particular way, but I definitely felt found with him. And I just liked... It was fun to pretend that you were as dirty as he was, even though, you know, nobody could be as dirty. Um, like, I, my favorite my favorite dirty prince... There's so much good dirty prince, but my favorite one is the, is the breakdown in Little Red Corvette. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where he's like, girl, got an ass like I've never seen. And he lets it sit there and he's like, the ride. I said, the ride is so sweet. And he like turns her into a lip. You must be a limousine. It's just, that's amazing. 
Yeah, what a weird metaphor that is. But that's what it was. But the, but you understood it on some level, right? Like it always, like you know, no matter what, even if you didn't really, you didn't understand what he meant by jockeys, what he meant by Trojans, all of those things. It had there was something iconic about it, like that just you know, it, it just hit you on a different level. Well, her just being a little red Corvette didn't even <laughs> didn't even know what that meant. We could talk about this forever, and I think we will. It was great catching up with you, man. I'll talk to you soon. When someone who looms as large in pop culture as Prince passes away, we never know what chord they're going to strike in our memory. One thing I thought of this morning was Jonathan Lethem's novel Motherless Brooklyn about a Tourette's-afflicted private detective who, like all of us, has a very personal relationship with Prince's music. I'm going to read a little bit of that. Then I went to my boombox and put on the saddest song in my CD collection, Prince's How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. I don't know whether the artist formerly known as Prince is teretic or obsessive-compulsive in his human life, but I know for certain he is deeply so in the life of his work. Music had never made much of an impression on me until the day in 1986 when, sitting in the passenger seat of Minna's Cadillac, I first heard the single Kiss squirting its manic way out of the car radio. To that point in my life, I might have once or twice heard music that toyed with feelings of claustrophobic discomfort and explosive release, and which in doing so passingly charmed my Tourette's, gulled it with a sense of recognition like Art Carney or Daffy Duck. But here was a song that lived entirely in that territory, guitar and voice twitching and throbbing within obsessively delineated bounds, alternately silent and plosive. It's so pulsed with teretic energy that I could surrender to its tormented squeaky beat and let my syndrome live outside my brain for once, live in the air instead. I knew I had to own that song, and so the next day I sought it out at JNR Music World. I needed the word funk explained to me by the salesman. He sold me a cassette and a Walkman to play it on. What I ended up with was a seven-minute extended single version, the song I'd heard on the radio with a four-minute catastrophe of chopping, grunting, hissing, and slapping sounds appended, a coda apparently designed as a private message of confirmation to my delighted Tourette's brain. Prince's music calmed me as much as masturbation or a cheeseburger. When I listened to him, I was exempt from my symptoms. So I began collecting his records, especially those elaborate and frenetic remixes tucked away on the CD singles. The way he worried 45 minutes of variations out of a lone musical or verbal phrase is, as far as I know, the nearest thing in art to my condition. How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore is a ballad, piano strolling beneath an aching falsetto vocal. Slow and melancholy, it still featured the teretic abruptness and compulsive precision, the sudden shrieks and silences that made Prince's music my brain's balm. I put the song on repeat and sat in the light of my candle and waited for the tears. Thanks for listening. Check us out at mtv.com slash news, where we'll be pulling stuff from the MTV archives and talking prints all day and all night. And when the elevator tries to bring you down, punch a higher floor. Oh,